Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop. Uh, today's workshop is on cancer and the workplace, knowing your legal rights. And this is a very important workshop. It's one that is very relevant to all of you who are living with cancer and really wanting to get on with the momentum of your lives. And it's just an important work is such an important part of many people's lives. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 590 participants, and you come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Lebanon, and the United Kingdom. So you really are a bit of an international call, a global call, and we're delighted that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, today's program um, is supported by a contribution from Lilly, Gilead, and a grant from Genentech. We really want to thank them for their support of this particular program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz. Dr. Saltz is Chief Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Saltz is going to address a number of items, um, understanding the meaning of work, talking with your healthcare team about your work, progress in cancer, treat cancer treatments and side effect management, and managing cancer treatments while working. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Saltz. Hi, everybody. It's, it's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you today. Um, let's talk a little bit about what it means for most patients who are working to be able to continue working while they're undergoing their cancer treatment. As one is dealing with cancer and learning to live with it as we try to control it shrink it, get rid of it, whatever the, the goal of care might be, keeping your life on a normal track uh, may, has an enormous amount of Im emotional importance. In addition, there may be simple financial realities. Uh, many people are in a situation where uh, they need the paycheck and uh, they may or may not have adequate coverage if they don't uh, continue working in terms of, of coverage for their financial needs. In addition, other people may have situations where in order to maintain their insurance, there is a need to continue working. So there's both emotional and practical financial reasons why, uh, whenever possible, it's a good idea. Now, for a person faced with a new cancer diagnosis, often there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty and a lot of fear that everything that they're used to being able to do is going to need to grind to a halt. That's not necessarily the case, and in most cases, it's not. What I try to explain to new patients when I'm meeting with them early on and putting a chemotherapy strategy together for them is my goal is for chemotherapy to be a minor inconvenience in their life, but not the dominant force in their life, not the focus of it, and not that which keeps them from doing the things that matter to them. So if Social and family time is what matters. We want to work to try to figure out how to emphasize that. If being able to continue to work and being productive in the workplace is important to a patient, then we need to be able to talk about that. What 
everything boils down to in the long run is good communication between the patient and the treating doctors. And that is a two-way responsibility. We as doctors have responsibility to try to open lines of communication, to try to make it a comfortable environment for people to talk and tell us what they're concerned about, and to try to anticipate what concerns a patient might have. You as a patient need to feel comfortable voicing your concerns. You need to be able to talk about whether work is important to you or not, if so, why, and what would be the constraints and the concerns because understanding what your concerns might be uh, could give us as doctors important clues as to how to make adjustments in our treatment. So let me give you some examples of how we might be able to work with that sort of thing. Uh, I'm going to speak about colorectal cancer for a moment because that's my primary area of expertise and the majority of patients that I take care of have, have uh, colorectal cancer. A lot of our therapies have options where there may be several different approaches that will each have a reasonable chance of being helpful, but the side effect profiles might be different, and those side effects might matter more to somebody with one set of goals or one concern about uh, workplace than another. For example, some of our drugs are either likely to cause a skin rash, including on the face, or likely to cause hair loss, and other drugs aren't. So obviously, if one has an unusual rash or loss of hair, people are going to notice. If privacy in the workplace is important to you and you don't want people to know about it, then talking with your doctor about trying to select regimens that emphasize side effect profiles that won't have these kinds of obvious clues may be a good choice. Um, a lot of regimens will perhaps cause fatigue for a period of time. So, for instance, uh, a, a regimen that I use frequently is likely to make people feel tired for the first two or three days, and it's given every other week. So if I have somebody who's not working, I may want to treat them earlier in the week so that they feel tired during the week, and then on the weekend when they're going to be spending more time with family and friends, they're feeling at their best. For people who are trying to work, however, I'm going to treat them at the end of the week so they have the weekend to take it easy and get the wind back in their sails and hopefully be ready to go to work Monday feeling up to it. Uh, it's important to understand that chemotherapy is just a big scary word for drugs. Doctors like big words. Chemotherapy has lots of syllables, so we like to use it instead of the word drugs. But it's no more specific than that. And different drugs have different side effects, and different side effects are likely or unlikely. So for example, the side effect that I think most people worry about with, when they hear the word chemotherapy is nausea and vomiting. And obviously, if you're nauseous all day, it's going to be very hard to be productive in the workplace. The good news is there have really been enormous advances in the area of controlling nausea and preventing it uh, over the past 20 years. And for the majority of patients that I take care of, nausea is either a non-existent problem or a very minor problem that doesn't really interfere with their life. Uh, in fact, we don't necessarily use all of our anti-nausea medicines all of the time because some drugs don't cause nausea and other drugs cause nausea without pretreatment, but as long as we give good 
pre-medication, we can prevent the nausea. If you are worried about nausea, that's something you need to be able to talk to your doctor about. If you're experiencing nausea despite anti-nausea medications, that's something you need to make sure your doctor knows about because there are changes that can be made, either by changing or adding anti-nausea medicines or by uh, making adjustments in the dose. Whenever we start with a chemotherapy regimen, we start with a dose based on your body size, whether it's weight or a combination of height and weight, and that's an approximation for starting, and then we have to have conversations as we go and ask you, how are you feeling? What are you experiencing? Is it acceptable to you? Is it manageable? Are you able to keep doing the things you want to be doing? And make adjustments in the doses as necessary to get you to where you want to be going. Now, one other aspect that I think is important to be able to talk about with your doctor is your concerns about whatever financial issues may come up in being a cancer patient. Um, doctors are really getting more aware of the degree to which insurances vary and uh, the need to continue working to keep the insurance, the degree to which insurance will cover the regimens and cover the care may vary from person to person. You need to feel comfortable talking with your doctor about that. You talk about every other personal aspect of your life with your doctor and uh, money as, perf as, as personal and private as it may be in, in many scenarios is something that if it's on your mind, you need to let the, the care team know. It may be that the doctor will be knowledgeable about the topic. It may be that he or she will refer you to somebody else in their team who can give you more expert advice. But these are, uh, these are, are, are the aspects that one needs to think about. And at the end of the day, if you're worried about it, it's a legitimate concern. But if you don't let your doctor know about it, he or she may not pick up on it uh, without your help. Um, other aspects to be aware of in terms of working. Most patients with solid tumor malignancies, like colon cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, when you're on a treatment with chemotherapy, yes, it's true that chemotherapy can lower your resistance to infection, but it's really important to ask questions about whether that matters in terms of exposure to people, because I see a lot of unnecessary concern out there that people feel, well, I can't go to work because I can't ride a bus or, or, or a crowded train or subway. Uh, I have to worry about being exposed to people. I have to wear a mask. I have to worry if uh, the person working in the next office or the next cubicle is, has a cough or a cold. Almost never is that really a valid concern. That is true in some types of leukemias and lymphomas where therapies are given that may drop the immune system to very low levels for very long periods of time. But for the most part, for a patient with a solid tumor malignancy like colon cancer, if they're going to get infected, it's going to be from the many trillions of bacteria and viruses that live in and on every, every one of us. You don't need help from somebody else to get sick. And by the same token, you don't have to worry that a common cold is all of a sudden going to be dangerous. For most cancer patients, a common cold is no more dangerous than if uh, you didn't uh, have cancer and weren't on chemotherapy. So um, I hope these comments are helpful to you, and I hope that they've answered some of your questions. I'm going to stop now and uh, let the other speakers talk to you, and I'll be available at the end of the call if you have any questions.
Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. That was really outstanding and just really um, very informative to everybody on the call. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is uh, Deborah Wolf. Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's supervising attorney legal health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAC. And uh, Ms. Wolf is going to address understanding your legal protections in the workplace, and she's going to go through those. Um, so those include the Americans with Disabilities Act, often referred to as ADA, Family Medical Leave Act, referred to as FMLA, and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, as well as state and local laws. And she'll also discuss disclosure and communication with coworkers and supervisors. It's really my great pleasure now to bring on uh, Deborah Wolf, um, who will uh, review these really important issues with all of you. Uh, Deborah. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm so happy to participate in this teleconference to discuss legal protections in the workplace. I'm going to give an overview of the laws that protect people while still working and also if they need to take a medical leave. I'll also talk about what to do if you believe you're being discriminated at work. My focus will be on federal laws that apply to all 50 states, but I do urge everyone listening to also become familiar with your state laws as they often expand on these federal laws, and I'll give some examples as we go forward. Before I review the applicable laws, I want to urge everyone, if you are working, to make sure to review the specific policies of your employer for medical leave and disability pay. Every employer should provide either a a summary of company policies and benefits, or a copy of the actual policy. And these policies must comply with the laws I'll be discussing. But in some circumstances, they might even offer a greater benefit. I'm going to begin with a law I'm sure most of you have heard of, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or often called the ADA. This is a federal law that applies to all 50 states to anyone who works for an employer with 15 or more employees. To be eligible for protection under the ADA, you must have a disability, which is defined as having an impairment as a result of your cancer diagnosis that substantially limits a major life activity, such as walking, working, eating, or sleeping. The ADA was recently amended to give a much broader and better definition of what is considered a disability and includes illnesses that have gone into remission such as cancer. And as a result, cancer is covered under the law as a qualified disability in most cases. The ADA has two main benefits. The first benefit is that it requires an employer to make reasonable accommodations when requested by an employee. This allows an employee to go to human resources or the boss if there's no human resources and request a modification of their work schedule, work environment, or company policies. What's reasonable is determined on a case-by-case -case basis, but an employer must grant the request unless it creates an undue hardship, which is a very tough burden for the employer to establish. Even extra cost for the employer is not always an undue burden. Some common accommodations I have helped clients set up include the following. A later work start time due to side effects of medication, a shorter workday, or an extra break during the day to rest. I recently assisted a writer set up a schedule that allowed her to work from home three days per week, but it's important to remember that you have to be able to do the essential functions of your job with the accommodation, so working from home may not always be an option for everyone. 
A job transfer to a less strenuous position can also be an accommodation. But if there are others waiting in line for the same position, the person, the person requesting the accommodation does not get priority status for the job. Now, your employer can't refuse an accommodation, but they can negotiate. Perhaps say, I'm not sure this will work, but let's talk about what will work for both of us. It must be what's called an interactive process or a discussion. Now, it's the employee that must request the accommodation, and generally the employer is not allowed to ask if an employee is disabled or needs the accommodation. This puts the burden on the employee to come forward, and it's important to do this if you feel that your illness or treatment is impacting your work. We'll talk a little later about discrimination, but an employee may have a legal claim against their employer if they refuse to approve a reasonable accommodation, but only if the accommodation is requested and the employer is aware of the disability. I always suggest that the accommodation request be made in writing with a letter of support from your doctor certifying that the accommodation is medically necessary. I also suggest that the letter specifically state that the employee is able to perform their job tasks. And any medical letter you provide to support your request must remain confidential and in a separate file outside of your regular employee file. The second ADA benefit is that the law prohibits discrimination against an employee because of a disability or a perceived disability, and this includes in hiring, firing, demoting, or any harassment. Also, if a person is able to do their job and has an accommodation in place or needs time off, the employer can't take action that adversely affects their job, such as termination or demotion. The next law I want to discuss is the Family Medical Leave Act, often called FMLA. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months and for 1,250 hours in the last year, and that comes out generally to about 30 hours a week. If an employee qualifies, they're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. FMLA, FMLA leave is unpaid, but can be supplemented with sick time or short-term disability. Now, during FMLA leave, employee benefits such as health insurance must continue, although the employee must continue to pay any contribution made for the premiums. Now, FMLA also allows for intermittent leave, and this is a great benefit for somebody who's suffering from side effects of chemotherapy. This may include requesting leave for just a few hours a week for treatment or for a doctor's visit. So as an example, an employee can request FMLA leave every other Thursday afternoon, let's say your chemo's on Thursday, as well as the following Friday, if all your sick time is used up, and your job will be protected for up to 12 weeks worth of time. Um, I've had some clients who have actually used FMLA to reduce their work week from a five-day week to a four-day week for almost the entire 52 weeks. With the ADA, you can only request the benefits, such as an accommodation for yourself. Under FMLA, time off can be requested to care for yourself or a family member such as a spouse or child, and it's an excellent benefit if you've used up all your sick 
time and somebody's worried about losing their job or is being threatened by a supervisor for excessive absences. Also, check your state laws here, as many states now have paid or protected leave policies even if you do not qualify for FMLA. Now, if your FMLA protected time off is used up and you think you may be able to return to work shortly, additional time off may be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA so the two laws can work together. And if you work for a smaller company, less than 50, and don't qualify for FMLA protection, time off for treatment can also be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Remember, the request must be reasonable, and there's no real set guidelines in what is reasonable is going to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. I also want to briefly discuss disclosure under the ADA and as it relates to discrimination. Disclosure is a very personal choice, and you have the right to determine who and under what circumstances you want to disclose your health issues, and I always urge caution when disclosing to coworkers and supervisors. Under the ADA, there are three distinct disclosure phases. The first is pre-employment or while applying and interviewing for jobs, and you have no legal obligation to disclose your cancer diagnosis or treatment. During this period, employers cannot ask any direct health or disability questions. They can't ask if you're disabled, although they can ask if you can perform the duties of your job with or without a reasonable accommodation. An employer can't require you to take a medical examination before you're offered a job. Next is a pre-employment job offer. If you go through the interview phase and your employer makes a conditional job offer, that can be conditioned on your passing a required medical exam, but only if all entering employees for that job category have to take the same examination. In other words, certain people can't be singled out. During this period, employers may ask you to complete medical questionnaires or have a medical exam, and you must be truthful in responding. However, an employer cannot revoke a job offer because of information about your disability revealed by the medical examination as long as you can perform the essential functions of the job with or without an accommodation. But an employer can renege on the job offer if you provide false information, so truthfulness at this stage is important. The third stage is once you're working, and your employer cannot require you take a medical exam or ask questions about your disability unless they're job-related and necessary for the conduct of your employer's business. Employees in jobs that involve public safety, such as a firefighter or bus driver, may have more job-related inquiries than, say, someone who works in an office. My general advice is to disclose only when required, and this would be if you need an ADA accommodation or time off under FMLA. Often, coworkers and supervisors are not your friends, and they become concerned about how your illness will affect their own job performance, such as a supervisor who needs to make sure you complete a certain project or make a quota if you work in sales.
If you must disclose for an accommodation or for FMLA or for any other reason, go to Human Resources if you can, as they should understand these laws that protect you, and many supervisors do not. Even with these laws, discrimination does exist. Often fellow employees and even supervisors and managers don't understand these laws and what their responsibilities are. So often I talk to people who tell me that they asked their supervisors for an accommodation and the reply was, oh, we don't do that here, or that's not possible, but that's because they don't understand the laws. If someone is working and believes they're being discriminated against, they should first try to resolve through human resources. HR employees are trained in these laws and should understand your rights and try to help you resolve. If the concern remains unresolved, a person can file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which enforces the ADA. An EEOC complaint generally must be filed within 180 days, but varies by state law, so a person should understand their state law and act quickly. The EEOC will investigate the complaint to determine if it has merit and may conduct a hearing if they believe there was discrimination. They can also issue a right to sue letter so you can file a court case, but an EEOC complaint and this right to sue letter are required before filing a lawsuit under the ADA. If you file the lawsuit without your right to sue letter, it will be dismissed. So this is one area in which I suggest you also check your state laws. For example, in New York where I practice, our city and state human rights laws mirror the ADA, including reasonable accommodations, but apply to, apply to employers with four or more employees offering protections to a broader group of people. If there is discrimination, I also urge you to talk to a lawyer before taking any steps so that you fully understand both your rights and responsibilities. So I want to end with a summary of practical solutions to avoid workplace issues, basically a summary of what I've discussed. First, important to understand your benefits, read your summary of benefits, and understand your employer's medical leave policy. And as I said, many employers and unions offer more generous time off policies than under FMLA. Next, use human resources or talk to an attorney if you feel you're being discriminated against. Be proactive to avoid any adverse action as a result of the discrimination. Coworkers and supervisors often have to be educated about the laws we discussed. That's the role of human resources. It shouldn't be your job. Next, think about any ADA accommodations that might help you in your job and seek a letter of medical support from your medical team. And then finally, think carefully of who you might disclose to. I want to stress that I speak to a lot of people who are working through their treatment and have employers and coworkers who have been incredibly supportive. So I don't want to give the impression that there are always problems because there are some terrific employers out there. But it's up to you, the individual, to decide if disclosure is needed. And I just urge everyone to think it through and do what's best for them. I know this is a lot of information, and I encourage listeners to take the time to educate themselves about these laws and their state laws that do offer protection, and seek out resources such as cancer care to have a better understanding of their rights and responsibilities. Thanks so much.
Oh, thank you very much, Deborah. That was really very comprehensive. And I do want to remind everybody that, um, because this is so much, a lot of information, and it's true, that these programs occur in real time right now, but they also are on replay, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, both as telephone replay and also um, on our website. And usually they go up within a day, so I would say um, they should be all up tomorrow, and that means you can listen to them day or night, weekends, anytime you want, if you want to get a refresher on it. So just to remind you all of that feature, particularly as I'm listening to Deborah, there's a lot of details here, and Dr. Saltz as well, and Kathy Nugent as well. There's a lot of details that you might like to listen to again. Many of you do that, may choose to do that. And our next speaker is Kathleen, Kathy Nugent, and Kathy is an oncology social worker, and she's director of regional programs at Cancer Care. And Ms. Nugent is going to address practical solutions to address workplace challenges, tips for creating a plan to continue working, Cancer Care's free psychosocial support programs and services, and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to, to uh, Ms. Nugent. Thank you, Carolyn, Dr. Sauls, Deborah, and thank you to everyone participating in today's Connect Education Workshop. The diagnosis of cancer can be devastating. One's life is suddenly changed. The diagnosis can present physical, practical, financial, and emotional challenges. Patients often feel alone and experience a sense of loss of control, and cancer presents a crisis in the life of the patient as well as the family. Everyone handles a cancer diagnosis differently. There's no one right way to handle it. Have you dealt with crisis in your life in the past may help you deal with the crisis presently. What's worked for you? What has not? What are your strengths? Take a look at those past crises and how did you utilize your coping skills at that time can be very helpful in dealing with the present cancer crisis. Focus on what you can do rather than what you're not able to do. Use those strengths and successful past strategies. Focus on the positives in your life and work with those positives. Take a look at your support system. I think this is really very important. Who can you turn to for support? Is it a family member, friend, coworker? Look at the role each person has in your life and how they may be able to assist you with workplace decisions and other practical concerns. Each person can play a role in your recovery. You may also consider reaching out to one of the many cancer support organizations like Cancer Care to speak to a professional oncology social worker who can provide support and guidance throughout your cancer journey. Working during your cancer treatment or returning to work after completing treatment can be one of those challenges. Remember that cancer can have a profound life-changing effect. A new normal is created. I have seen many cancer patients throughout my career rush back into the workplace expecting everything to be the same. Many are surprised and at times disappointed. Many find that their priorities have changed. Take it slow. Listen to your body. You may have to make some adjustments to the pace of your work to fit with your new normal life. Evaluate your readiness to go back to work or to continue work. Can you work part-time or full-time? If you can manage part-time, what kinds of accommodations need to be made? Once you've decided to go back to work, part-time or full-time, work out a schedule with your employer. And here are a few tips that I'd like uh, to share to help you face the challenges of the workplace. And these first tips is certainly, um, I'm actually repeating a little bit of what Dr. Salsa said, 
um, earlier in, in our program today. It's really important to, to discuss your work plan with your doctor and, or your healthcare team. If you need to work during treatment, share this information with your doctor. As Dr. Sauls had mentioned, maybe your treatment protocol and your schedule can be adjusted to accommodate your workplace needs. Discuss your, the side effects with your medical team of your treatment. How can you manage these side effects while working? And your medical team can be very helpful in providing useful information and support with the, on this issue. As mentioned earlier, slow your pace. Take work breaks. Set priorities. Take care of one responsibility at a time rather than multitasking. Set attainable goals. Set small goals at first to help make the adjustment back to the workplace easier. Write down your priorities and goals and cross them out as you accomplish each goal. Smaller goals can be more attainable. Delegate whenever possible. And remember, work can be a positive distraction and can help to give you a better sense of control in your life. As mentioned earlier, speaking to a professional social worker can be helpful during your adjustment back into the workplace. Cancer Care offers free practical support, education, and counseling services to patients and caregivers. Our oncology-trained social workers can be very helpful in setting an action plan and managing your new normal. If you happen to live in the New York metro area, our social workers can meet with you in one of our regional offices in Connecticut, New Jersey, Long Island, or New York City. Telephone support is provided through our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE. The cancer experience can be an economic burden. Limited financial assistance may also be available through cancer care, and cancer care can help reduce the costs associated with transportation to and from treatment, home care, and child care. In addition, cancer care social workers can direct you to other resources in your community that may offer financial assistance and other support services. Cancer Care has a full complement of publications available to you. And you can go to our website at www.cancercare.org and order any publication free of charge. And lastly, the cancer experience often leaves us feeling alone. I would like to emphasize that you are not alone. Cancer Care is here for you. We provide help and hope to all cancer patients. At Cancer Care, people can gain emotional support, insight, and reassurance by participating in one of our free telephone online support groups. All of our support groups are facilitated by professional oncology social workers. A support group can be an empowering experience for a patient or caregiver. Support groups provide a safe environment to share common issues and concerns. There may be participants in the group who have similar workplace issues, and through sharing best practices and advice, you can feel less alone and find strength when discovering new ideas and coping strategy from each other. More information about all of the services mentioned at Cancer Care can be found at our website, again at www.cancercare.org, or by calling and speaking to one of our professional social workers by calling our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you.
Oh, thank you very much, Kathy. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. I really want to thank all of our speakers for making that possible. And I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if indeed we don't have, a, we don't have time for your question, or you think of a question in a couple of days or weeks ahead, we'll give you all the places to call to get your, your questions answered. But right now, Stephanie, if you could tell everybody how to queue up and ask questions, we'll take as many as we can right now. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, please press star then 1 to ask a question. I have a question from one of our online participants, um, from Maureen. What if employee requests a job position that is less stressful but the pay for this position is lower? How is that handled? So, Deborah, do you want to take that on first in terms of that, sure. that issue? Sure. So, generally, when there's a request for a reasonable accommodation, there shouldn't be a change in pay status. However, if the accommodation request is for a different job that has different job tasks, different job duties, then it is possible that the employer can require that the employee take a lower pay um, so it really, again, is a case-by-case -case basis in terms of what are the differences in the job, you know, what is the difference, is there any difference in the time commitment, but it is possible with an accommodation that involves a job transfer that um, there could be a reduced pay as a result. And actually, um, Kathy, do you want to just comment on sometimes the perception of a job that one has already being stressful versus going to a job that might be new and appearing to be less stressful, but there's the learning curve and all that. So do you want to just comment on that? Um, I, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not really sure what you're what you're asking, Deb, uh, well, Carolyn. Well, sometimes actually, so um, it, sometimes one actually is in, in a position that one thinks is too stressful, and thinking to go to another position that might be less stressful, but not having been in that position, um, mm. okay. how much we think that through in terms of what that other position might be. Absolutely. Or, yeah, I think sometimes it certainly can be helpful to speak to a social worker, or actually, you know, one of the things I did not mention. I know Deborah mentioned talking about disclosure, but. I think sometimes in the workplace, if we have um, colleagues that um, are more familiar with uh, different jobs, that might be helpful. I think always looking towards uh, trustful um, employees can provide some support. So I think maybe exploring um, what those job um, responsibilities would be, maybe talking with um, other employees, um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, speaking with a social worker um, such as someone at Cancer Care, really to role play and uh, kind of talk through some of the issues and fears that one might have, um, I think might be certainly helpful um, to somebody considering another job within, within their um, company. And Dr. And if I, if I oh, could yes, add yes, one please. more thing, Carolyn, um, job accommodation requests continue throughout your employment. So if you request an accommodation and you realize that it's not working for you or that you need something different or something more, you still have the right to go to your employer and say, I have this accommodation. It's not working for this reason. Can we talk this through again and figure out what's going to work? So it's a continuing obligation for the employer to make sure that the accommodation is going to work for you. And, and Dr. Self, do you want to add anything in terms of just working with your physician health healthcare team in terms of 
you know, evaluating about just having that discussion, like I'm thinking of switching to a different job because I think it might be less stressful than what I have. And Well, I think that that's, like everything else, a personal decision, and the more that you share your thoughts on that with the, the, the doctors and providers that are treating you, the better that you can get feedback and guidance. I often caution patients that um, sometimes stress is a little bit overemphasized in our society. Um, firstly, I, I, I so often get asked uh, by patients, did stress cause my cancer? And my first answer is, God, I hope not. Uh, and my second answer is, I really, really don't have any evidence of that. If we look historically at times where uh, stress was high, uh, depression, world wars, we don't see spikes in cancer rates. So you don't, in my opinion, need to reduce stress in order to help you get better from cancer. I think you have to decide how you're going to be living your life with cancer. And for many of us who get satisfaction from work, changes or decrease in the amount might be very stressful. And certainly there's some comfort level in what you know compared to, as has been said, what you don't know and that and, and, and there are always going to be some surprises. So I would be careful about overemphasizing the concept of stress, and I would think carefully about what level of it works for you. Stress in and of itself is not an overtly bad thing. Oh, thank, uh, excellent. Thank you. That's an excellent point, actually. Um, thank you. And um, we have a question, Stephanie, um, from one of our telephone participants. Our next question comes from Julie P. Your line is open. Hi. Um, I'm an oncology social worker, and I just had a question about intermittent FMLA. I often have family members um, who file the paperwork with their employer for intermittent leave, maybe to take a family member to chemotherapy once a week or something like that. And the question often comes up, how do they request the intermittent leave? Do they call and say, I'm taking an FMLA day today? How logistically um, is the best way for them to access those days? That's an excellent question. Thank you for bringing up the whole concept of, um, the, if Deborah could say more about intermittent FMLA, which may not be as well known to everybody, and it's just it's wonderful, actually. Deborah, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so to start, in terms of requesting FMLA leave, it's a little bit different than the ADA in that the employer has some responsibilities too. So most employers do have a form you need to complete and there's a medical certification to request FMLA. And the, the employer has a responsibility to come forward if somebody discloses they're taking medical leave and advise them of their rights under FMLA. So a little bit different than the ADA. Um, for intermittent leave, the rule is that a person has to give as much notice as possible when possible. So it really leaves it open. So when somebody has intermittent FMLA, because they're having chemotherapy and there may be days when they're not feeling well enough to go to work, of course it's not reasonable that they're going to know three or seven days beforehand that they need to take that day off. And the law is written so that... Um, it, it, it gives people the opportunity to have intermittent FMLA where they really can just call in that morning and say, I'm not feeling well today, I have to take, take a day off. In terms of family members, it's really the same thing. I think when somebody requests FMLA, besides filling out the employer forms, 
they should also include their own letter that says, you know, as a result of my family member's cancer diagnosis, I may have to be available at a last minute, on a last minute basis if they're not feeling well or they need to get to the doctor's office. I will provide as much notice as I can, but in some circumstances, I may not be able to give even a day's advance notice. So really, you know, from the beginning to let it be known that with the FM, intermittent FMLA, there may be times when last-minute leave requests have to be made. Excellent. Thank you. That's helpful, Julie. Um, and we have another question in front of our online participants. Um, I have a full-time job and was recently diagnosed with cancer. How will side effects from my chemotherapy affect my ability to work? And so, Dr. Saltz, um, if you could say a bit more about that, you have, um, if you could sure. address that a bit. Um, the, I, I'd say the only word that's more general than chemotherapy is cancer. There, there are many different cancers and many different chemotherapies. And without knowing the specifics, it would be impossible to say. Even if I did know the specifics, what I would tell you is it's tremendously variable. And a chemotherapy may be perfectly tolerable and manageable for one person and have side effects that really do interfere with working with another. So what I would say is approach this with a positive attitude and the assumption that this is going to work and then adjust with the problems that happen if they happen. If we find that there is a side effect that's distracting or making it uh, difficult to work, then that's an issue that you need to talk with your doctor about in terms of what can be done to make changes. Can we change the dose? Can we change the supportive medications? Are there medicines that might counteract the side effect that's bothering me? Are there different ways of scheduling the medicine so that it doesn't interfere with my work? Um, th there are lots of questions, and I can't give you the answers without knowing all of them, but what I would say is ask the questions, keep an open mind, and assume that there will be a solution. Excellent. And I guess the world has changed significantly um, in terms of managing treatment side effects. Is that true, Dr. Saltz? Or? I think, you know, I wish that we had made as much advance in every aspect of cancer care as we have in the symptom management. But I think we really have made very important, very, very dramatic improvements in our ability to counteract nausea, in our ability to counteract vomiting, in our ability to counteract many of the side effects that gave chemotherapy that, that, that scary name. And uh, I'm not saying that chemotherapy is going to, be a walk, going to be a walk in the park for everybody, but I'm saying that the majority of people can keep it on, on the back burner and live their lives and do the things they need to be doing. Uh, Carolyn, can I just add something with sure. that too? I think sometimes, I think Dr. Sulz is correct, I think a lot of, uh, many times our patients come to us with um, kind of cancer stories of somebody maybe uh, a relative or a friend 10, 20 years ago going through chemotherapy and they have these preconceived fears um, about what the treatment would be. So. Um, I think it is an important point to say that there has been so many breakthroughs in terms of managing um, side effects that um, many, many patients that I've worked with through the years continue to work. I would also suggest that patients keep a log of um, any side effects uh, that they are experiencing so that they can really speak with their doctors when they go in for their treatments. Um, sometimes it becomes so overwhelming when we sit down with our physicians that we forget um, some of the things we'd like to ask. So I think writing down 
questions, concerns, side effects, et cetera, is very helpful for our patients. That's a very good point. I often advise patients to write down any thoughts or concerns they have. I, I say to people, you're going to think of a question. Well, first of all, you'll think of two or three on the way home today, and then you'll think of one at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then they won't be there in your mind when we next sit down and talk. So get in the habit of writing things down. There's no such thing as a foolish question. If it's a concern to you and you don't know the answer, you need to feel comfortable asking it. And I can't emphasize enough that while doctors will try to ask you about side effects, we can't anticipate everything. And it's the wrong time to try to be a hero. You're not being, quote, a bad patient if you're telling us what's wrong. You're being a helpful patient if you're telling us what's wrong. So we need to know from you what's bothering you, what's working for you, and what's not and that can help us tailor and, and, and customize your care. And I hope you all heard that coming from Dr. Saltz, who is a medical oncologist, who is actually telling you, ask me your questions, keep track of them all so we can really address your concerns and have the most appropriate treatment for you, which is really important. So um, I'm not sure that will come up again, but really thank you so much. This is a really f phenomenal questions and really a phenomenal uh, speakers as well. This is really amazing. And we do have another... Um, uh, we have another question from one of our telephone participants. Our next question comes from Rita M. Your line is open. Yes. When you were talking about the intermittent uh, family uh, leave, is this time off above the sick days that you're entitled to? And also, are you not paid for those intermittent family leave days? Well, that's a great question, and Deborah, would you address that? Because that, that is an issue for many people who don't intermittent FMI and, and pay. They're concerned sure. about that. So um, I, in, the response to your first question is yes. So this is used if somebody has used their sick days. The FMLA offers another 12 weeks of job-protected leave. So FMLA is unpaid, and I'll address that in a minute, but it's job protection. So for somebody who's taking, let's say, a chunk of time off, let's see they need to take six weeks off because they're having surgery, they'll be protected for those six weeks under FMLA, and they may be eligible for disability pay to supplement their income. For intermittent FMLA, it generally shouldn't affect your pay, but there's a lot of variables. So for a salaried employment employer who has to take a half a day off um, for their doctor's appointments a few times a month, it, shouldn't it should not impact their salary. But it's going to depend on how the leave is set up. For somebody who's an hourly wage earner, it will affect their salary because they're not going to be paid for the hours that they're not working. If somebody is salaried and let's say they set up their leave to take every Friday off, let's say they have chemo Thursday afternoons and they take off every Friday to you know, have a long weekend to recover from any side effects, it's possible that their employer can say, you know, we'll have to reduce your salary to a four-day-a-week salary because, in effect, you're only going to be here four days a week. That's allowed. But again, it's going to depend on the amount of time that's taken, how it's taken, and looked at on a company policy. Companies 
have to, employers have to follow their policies for everybody. So that's why it's important to understand what their medical leave policies are, how they work, and they have to apply them uniformly to all the, all the employees that, that need medical leave. And um, Deborah, I know you've given out um, resources for people to call on national resources in terms of um, legal groups that actually offer consultation to people, uh, much like NILAC does uh, pro bono. If you could um, provide that information, because that might be helpful for people in addition to calling the EOC, of course, but um, that might be a helpful resource to give to people. Sure. So there's a, there's a lot of organizations out there that do the work that I do, provide free legal work to people with cancer. I want to start by letting you know that there's a National Cancer Legal Service Network, and this is a network of attorneys like myself who do this work. And you can actually go to their website, which is nclsn.org, and see if there's uh, an attorney in your area who can provide legal advice or legal assistance. So that's the National Cancer Legal Support Network. There's a lot of organizations out there. There's an organization called Cancer and Careers. That's terrific. There's also this wonderful site called the Job Accommodation Network. And I, it's, let me look this up for you. It's askjan, A-S-K-J-A-N dot org. And it's all about reasonable accommodations under the ADA, and it can be illness-specific. So you can look up, for example, a cancer diagnosis, see what typical accommodation requests are, suggested accommodations to help you um, do the essential functions of your job. And it's a terrific site for anybody that is thinking about asking for an accommodation and thinking through what accommodations will help. As I said, there's no set list of accommodations, so it's really up to you to think through what's going to help me get through my day. Is it going to be some extra break time? Is it going to be perhaps leaving a little bit early? Could it be as simple as maybe an ergonomically correct chair so you're more comfortable while you're working? Again, it's, you know, it takes some thought to think about the accommodations that are going to help you um, perform your job tasks and get through your workday. Excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> and we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so the question is, um, I was just diagnosed with cancer and plan to continue working. Do I have to tell my employer that I have cancer? Um, Deborah, could you address that? Well, the answer to that is there's no requirement that you tell your employer that you have cancer. Um, unless you plan on requesting an accommodation or unless you um, need to take some medical leave. The rules vary. So for example, as I said, if somebody has a job that involves public safety, such as a firefighter or a bus driver, then there are more enhanced disclosure rules. But generally for most of us who work in, you know, the um, in office jobs in regular business, there's no requirement that you disclose to your employer. Um, some people out there feel that they're more protected if they do disclose, and sometimes they, if, if somebody feels that they want to disclose, I always suggest that they do it to human resources and they do it in writing because under the ADA, any disclosures that are made in writing are protected. And as I said, there, there will 
any medical information has to go in a separate file. So for example, if your boss wants to look at prior performance reviews and they look in your personnel file, there's not going to be anything in there about your cancer diagnosis. Um, so again, disclosure is something to think through, but not required unless you're asking for accommodations or medical leave. Excellent. Well, I want to thank everyone. These, uh, I must say the speakers, all of you, have been outstanding. And all of you have asked such great questions, both on the telephone and online. They've been extraordinary questions, which really have helped to enhance the call. We know you asked them to help to get some help for yourselves, but you also help everybody on the call by allowing our speakers to elaborate on the issues that you've raised. I want to remind everyone that this is a one-hour program and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have so many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so I do want to remind all of you about the fact that um, if you have questions, where to get them answered, first of all. So um, if you have a question that is, is medically related to your particular type of cancer, I would definitely suggest that you call the National Cancer Institute. They have information specialists that kind of stand by after our programs, and they're there, of course, throughout the week um, to answer questions. And their number is one 800 422-6237. And again, that's 1-800-422-6237. And that information is also sent to all of you as a resource. In addition, if you indeed want help with you know, issues around talking about your workplace concerns, about your need for any practical or financial assistance, wanting to talk to a social worker, um, wanting to join one of our support groups, all those services are free, you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And let me repeat that again. It's 1-800-813-4673. And again, that you'll have those materials sent to you as well. Most importantly, we would not want anyone to leave this call thinking that you're alone. You are now really part of the cancer care world here, and we are here to help you. We are simply a phone call away, and for our international participants, you can come to our website and pose a question as well. In other words, we are here for you at all times, and I want you to know that you can absolutely call us, and we are here to help you. I want to wish you all a very fun day, and I want to thank you all for participating in this very important call, and we have many other programs coming up, and you'll be hearing about them as well um, through communication from us. But I do want to point out one that we have coming up, which might be of interest to some of you, which is on nutrition and healthy eating tips during and after cancer treatments. That's actually on February 1st. Um, it's a Monday, and it's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. So that might be of interest to some of you to sign up for if you haven't already. Again, thank you all for being on the call today, and I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.